And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today's show will be Adoption 101, everything you need to know at the beginning. I think you are really going to enjoy this show. Here's just a taste of what you will hear. I think that that uh, that issue about the information that's provided by the agency or the law firm to the prospective adoptive parents varies wildly. Um, and it's really one of the best ways prospective adoptive parents can choose an agency or a law firm because to find out, you know, what is their typical information that's provided, um, like are they given, um, for instance, redacted copies of, of, of medical information on the, on the uh, expected mother? Um, are there not only is there medical and social, you know, uh, information such as did grandmother have asthma or did grandfather have heart disease and all the way back, but also some of these sort of intangible qualities about who the expected mother is. Um, why is she choosing adoption? Uh, what does she want the child to know about the reason she placed this child for adoption? Uh, what's her favorite book and favorite movie? I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Organization, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show. We use the podcast model, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, you can subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Finding cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medication through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can go to the heartbeatprogram.com website, or you can talk to either your oncologist or reproductive uh, endocrinologist if you have one. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to pre- and post-adoptive families and to the patient community. They believe, as do we, that adoptive parents uh, and infertility patients that are educated make better parents. Some of our wonderful sponsors include Spence Chapin. They are an accredited nonprofit organization that has been offering quality adoption services for more than 100 years. Their mission is to find adoptive homes for children in need here and in countries around the world. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. We have Children's Connection. They are a child welfare and adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support 
to families throughout the United States. We also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show as well as everything else that we do here at Creating a Family. We ask that when choosing an adoption or an infertility service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us And we truly thank you. Today's show will be everything you need to know when you first start thinking about adoption. As you guys who have been listening to this show for a long time know, we usually do a little more in-depth analysis of a topic. But today is going to be kind of a skating on the surface to kind of give you an overview of what you need to know when you're first starting out. Our guests are Jim Thompson. He is a South Carolina attorney with offices in Spartanburg and Charleston. He has worked in the fields of adoption and assisted reproductive law for 25 years. We have Leanne Carnes. She is the Chief Operating Officer of Children's Connection, Inc., an adoption and child welfare agency with offices throughout Texas. We also have Kara Eusebio. She is the Associate Director of Outreach with Spence Chapin Services to Families and Children in New York City. Welcome, Kara, Jim, and Leanne to Creating a Family. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you, Dawn. Well, this I, this is going to be a fun show. Uh, it's uh, I, I told you guys that you probably wouldn't need to do a whole lot of preparing <laughs> because the questions are going to seem general, but they are truly the questions that we see literally three or four times every day on our uh, online Facebook support group. The first thing you need to decide, we think, here at Creating a Family, when you're first thinking about adoption, is the type of adoption that's best for you. And then we we strongly recommend that you take a, a set period of time and dive into all the resources you can find and, and start to get educated about that option so you're going to be in a better position and know more to be, make the next steps, the next decisions that come down the, the, the pike. We recommend at least two weeks if you're very industrious uh, of spending time. You know, join the support group, ask questions, uh, go to Creating a Family and read. There are lots of other resources. Child Welfare Information Gateway has some great resources, and there are uh, uh, there are other there are many other resources online. Make sure that they're reputable and, and are giving you unbiased information. Um, and then once you get uh, once you you really kind of have a working knowledge of the type of adoption you think is best. The third thing we do is suggest at that point to select an uh, adoption agency or an adoption attorney. So often people come to us saying, how do I choose, how do I get a home study? And they haven't done any of the other thinking first. And and we really suggest at this point to hold off and do the first two steps. This show uh, is going to, intended to help you with the first two steps understanding the different types of adoption, which that type would be best for you, and uh, will jumpstart you on the education. We have at, on Creating a Family's website, website creatingafamily.org, a three-step process complete to uh, help you choose an adoption agency or an adoption attorney. It's complete with questionnaires, worksheets, and links, uh, so you can go there and, and, and help you with the, the last of the three steps we say at the very beginning. Okay, enough of my talking. We're going to start with domestic infant adoption. Uh, let me give you just a little, some basic information about that. It is possible to adopt an infant in the U.S. from either an adoption agency or an adoption attorney. The cost for domestic infant adoption, uh, and, and all the costs we give are going to be a range, and there's a reason for that, and we'll talk later about what affects uh, where you are on that range. 
But the cost of domestic inf- the average cost, I should say, of domestic infant adoption ranges from twenty five thousand to thirty five thousand. Now you'll see some that are more, and you're going to see some that are less, but that's the average. All right, Jim. Let me start with you. Where do the babies who are available for domestic infant adoption come from? And please don't tell me it's the stork. Okay. I'll be careful not to mention the stork. Um, <laughs> no cats, no storks. Um, I think a lot of these answers are going to depend on the state where the um, prospective adopting parent reside or where they, they hope to, to work. There are some states that are very agency-focused, um, and there are other states, like my state of South Carolina, where about um, the same percentage of infant adoption placements are done through attorneys as are done by uh, adoption agencies, year in and year out. They're within a few percentage points of one another. There, there are other states that don't allow attorneys to make infant placements. So um, it will depend on where that person resides. But what generally happens, whether it be an agency or a law firm, is that people who've been working in the field of adoption for a while build a reputation, a reputation of both being there for the adopting parents, but also, very importantly, for the expected mothers. And so if a if an expected mother goes to a hospital and has not had prenatal care and is delivering and she has she's asking for an adoption plan, uh, that uh, hospital social worker is going to give the name of some agencies or some law firms that, with whom he or she has worked. Um, that's one referral source. Crisis pregnancy centers know um, who they have worked with in the past, and they may refer to an adoption agency or to a law firm. And then there's a lot of outreach that these agencies and lawyers do on their own, on the web, to have websites where expectant parents can, on their own, privately, um, you know, without a set appointment, just um, do some surfing, if you will, on what Mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, adoption plan might be there for them. So I think all of us who work in adoption seek to empower expectant mothers to consider adoption, and then they call, and then all of us will have different resources available. Some law firms, like my own, have social workers on staff. Um, Some adoption agencies, of course, would have also social workers. Um, And so I think as a person considers those two things, there's probably a hybrid of law and social work that's evident in all adoption, and some agencies may focus um, less on the law than a law firm. Some some law firms may focus less on social work, and then I think there are those of us we hope who do it well that have a have a healthy um, hybrid of both of those disciplines well represented in the work we do. Okay, Leanne, can you adopt an infant from any state, or are you limited to adopting um, a baby from the state with which you reside? It's possible to adopt an infant from any state. Um, You would have to locate an agency in that state um, to work with. You would have to have a home study from your own state and um, would need to work with that agency in the state you're planning on adopting from uh, to make sure that you're meeting all the requirements for that state as well as your state so that when the baby is placed with you that they're able to get the paperwork through interstate compact for the placement of children. Okay, yeah, you would have to, that would add an, an added piece. It also adds a tiny bit, of, not a tiny bit necessarily, it does add a little bit to the cost, though, because you would have the cost of travel. So it's something to um, to, to think about. 
Kara, who usually selects the adoptive parents in, in domestic infant adoption? So in our program, we uh, typically it's the birth parents that uh, select the uh, adoptive parents. They're able to look at information um, that the prospective adoptive parents have submitted about their lifestyle, what kind of life they could provide a child, um, and their background. Um, we also do have birth parents who ask us to help them make that decision or to make that decision for them. Um, and in that case, we would really take a look at a bunch of different factors to figure out who the best family was for a child. All right. And, Jim, in your practice, uh, what uh, is uh, do the um, prospective birth mothers, the expectant mothers, are they usually the ones who are choosing or, or do you yes. and your staff? Yes. We, as a law firm, we have to be very careful because we represent all of our clients um, and Therefore, we have a fiduciary duty to each client. So for us to exercise discretion in favor of one client would be a disservice to all the others. So, yeah, we we empower birth moms in the, in the best way we can to consider the factors they're looking for. Uh, if they want a family that has uh, a bunch of other kids because maybe she grew up with siblings and that meant a lot to her, then we'll show her families that have siblings. If she wants her child to be placed with a child with a family that de- – has no other children or perhaps has a specific racial preference um, or um, a preference for religion or uh, something like that, um, we, we will try to um, show her those family profiles, which are basically picture books with uh, maybe a, a letter to the birth mom, um, often done on Shutterfly or Snapfish or one of these kind of uh, um, ways that um, – you know, scrapbooking, I guess some people are still doing that. I know I, I know that uh, you can spend a fortune on scrap scrapbooks if one wants to, but these, these other ways of doing them online seem to be the way most of our birth moms choose um, prospective adoptive parents. And, and I'll tell you, it's a beautiful thing to watch because I know when my wife and I were going through adoption and we were putting together our family profile, I, I kept looking for pictures where I looked, you know, younger and thinner. But um, it's... That's, it's um, but that's really, um, you know, birth moms are not looking for this exotic lifestyle or the, the family that looks like they have the three-car garage instead of the two-car garage or the folks that are looking for, you know, some exotic lifestyle. They're they're really looking for a connection, um, something that they may not even be able to quantify um, with before they start looking or maybe even after they've picked the family. But they say, you know what, I've been through all of these books and, this is my family. And so um, that that's how um, I, I think the vast majority of private infant adoption empower the, the, the birth parent to be able to, to be a part of that selection. Leanne, how much information will adoptive parents have on the lifestyle choices of the expectant mother and, and birth family health history, uh, things such as that? How much information is usually available? I think that probably depends somewhat um, on the agency that they're working with or the attorney that they're working with and the particular situation that they have. Um, However, in general, I believe that they are um, given quite a bit of information about the health, social, education, and genetic history of the family. I know in Texas, um, that's one of the things that we're required to have um, 
and provide to adoptive families is a health, social, education, and genetic history um, where we've interviewed the birth parent or birth parents and uh, asked them questions about their history and their family's history so that that can be passed on to the adoptive family. Um, that's all very, very important for the adoptive family to have so that they have that information to provide to their child as they get older. And so also if they have uh, medical issues come up, they have a little bit of background that they can rely on. All right. And John, I'm gonna, I, yeah, please go ahead, Jim. I think that that uh, that issue about the information that's provided by the agency or the law firm to the prospective adoptive parents varies wildly, um, and it's really one of the best ways prospective adoptive parents can choose an agency or a law firm because to find out, you know, what is their typical information that's provided. Um, like, are they given, um, for instance, redacted copies of, of of medical information on the on the uh, expected mother? Um, are there not only is there medical and social, you know, uh, information such as did grandmother have asthma or did grandfather have heart disease and all the way back, but also some of these sort of intangible qualities about who the expected mother is. Um, why is she choosing adoption? Uh, what does she want the child to know about the reason she placed this child for adoption? Uh, what's her favorite book and favorite movie? I mean, you can know a lot about somebody if they say, uh, you know, I like Taylor Swift and my favorite color is pink, or they say, I like, you know, this rap artist and my favorite color is, I don't know, black. Um, <laughs> we're we're going to see something more about who she is, and I find that these adopting parents end up connecting to the birth mom based on that information that's provided. And I have seen cases where lawyers or, or adoption agencies give very superficial information, and I think that is one of the opportunities for um, for the adopting parents to really do a, a qualitative assessment about the, the place they're working with because we want to have as much information about that that expectant mother so that we can better parent the, that child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, Dawn, I'd like to also throw in there, um, and I totally agree with what Jim was saying, um, when we interview birth parents, we make sure it's a personal face-to-face -face interview. Some agencies, and I think this is important for adoptive parents to know when they're talking to agencies or even attorneys or whoever they're working with to complete their adoption, is that they're asking, you know, what type of information are you obtaining from the birth parents and are you doing this face-to-face -face or are you handing them a packet of paper and saying, here, fill this out, because there's a huge difference in the information that we obtain by doing a face-to-face -face interview as opposed to having a birth parent fill out some paperwork. Mm -hmm. Don, just to yeah. add, you know, I think – oh, sorry, Jimna, to, yeah. to jump yeah. in, but I, I just wanted to add that – you know, a lot of times, you know, the information that we get from a birth mother or birth parents at the time that they're looking to make an adoption plan um, is, is often influenced by the fact that, you know, they're self-reporting. They might be very, very nervous, very, very scared. Um, they don't think of everything kind of maybe right in that moment that might be helpful to share at some point with, with their child. Um, and we really do encourage, you know, that the lines of communication remain open 
not just between you know adoptive uh, adoptee and, and birth parent, but also the lines of communication remain open with us, um, and that birth parents do have that opportunity to come back and share more information, either using us kind of as a go-between, or share that information directly with the birth family, um, so that you know over the course of a child's life, maybe more questions you know are able to be answered. Um, that that would really help both birth parent and adoptee. And so I think you know in in terms of I know we're not to this question yet, but in terms of, you know, types of relationships between adoptees and birth parents, you know, that's part of the reason, one of the many reasons why we really do encourage um, open adoptions, at least to some extent. Okay. You are listening John, to Creating are... a Family. Just a second, Jim, I'll come right back to you. Yes, yeah, sure. You are listening to Creating a Family. This show is Adoption 101. Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social network, and we would love to have you join us. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can like our Facebook page, which is Creating a Family. You can join our closed Facebook support group, uh, the best way to find that is just to type in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box. Both the page and the group will pop up, and you can like the page and join the group. You can also connect with me personally, dawn.davenport1. We are Pinterest fanatics around here as well. We have a huge Pinterest uh, community. We have close to, or maybe even over at this point, 30 boards, uh, Pinterest boards. It is such a fun place to um, to just kill a couple of, well, I was going to say a couple of minutes, but nobody goes on to Pinterest for just a couple of minutes. Um, and, of course, Twitter. Uh, you connect with me at Dawn Davenport 1. Or, no, let me stop back up with creating a family. Uh, that's the other way to connect with us on Twitter. Jim, I'm sorry I had interrupted you. What were you going to say? No, thank you. I, I was noticing that all three of us are, are, are really um, adamant about the importance of that that flow of information um, to the prospective adopting parent before they com- commit to an adoption. Um, but um, I also want to emphasize that that idea of that face-to-face meeting that was just mentioned is so important. And there are a lot of adoption providers that do things more through the mail and through the phone than in that face-to-face meeting. And that, too, is a, a big distinction, as well as there are, there are adoption service providers who are not agencies or licensed attorneys. And um, I don't know if I'm allowed to be on my soapbox on your radio show, Dawn, so I'll be, I'll be, I'll be mindful of that. But you there jump are right adop- on. <laughs> there are adoption, what we call facilitators. And mm-hmm. facilitators um, is usually a word that has a positive connotation, uh, at least for me in the adoption context, not because licensed, uh, facilitators are not licensed agencies. Therefore, they are not licensed, therefore um, not regulated, and therefore not accountable. There are some uh, facilitators who do good work, um, but one should should know a lot of these adoption agencies and facilitators and law firms sound the same. Um, but, uh, they have names that are uh, very child-friendly and inviting, and you need to drill below the surface to find out if they are actually a licensed child placement agency. And and they keep in mind they are not, and there are some states that specifically prohibit the use of a facilitator, and that's information you need to know before you um, um, hire one because it will be money that was lost or even worse, uh, a placement that is lost. 
Kara, I'm going to direct the next question to you, but I'm going to, it's going to be a round robin. This is the question that every attorney and agency hates to hear, uh, <laughs> which is, of course, why I'm asking it, and that is, how long will I wait? How long is the usual wait for a, uh, a domestic uh, adoption? And if the answer, I'm just anticipating here, is it depends, um, then then tell us some of what it depends on. Sure. So you're going to love this because it depends. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it's tough to say. Um, So, you know, from the entire process, really, from, you know, deciding to choose adoption to submitting an application to getting the home study together um, and to, you know, creating, you know, your profile. Like Jim was saying, typically we have we have uh, prospective adoptive parents make a, a photo album and, and that tells a little bit about themselves. And then to finally waiting for uh, the referral, um, you know, that whole process can take, you know, um, a few months. Um, but once you're actually all of your paperwork is in and you're just waiting, you know, that time can take a couple months to a couple of years. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons. Sometimes, you know, we always prepare people to for that waiting period and provide them support and uh, throughout that whole time. But it can feel like forever, especially when you're factoring in, you know, that you've spent a lot of time maybe on infertility treatments. You know, you've already gone through several rounds of that. This just feels like the next step and more waiting. Um, but it really, you know, like the other, you know, panelists were saying, you know, depends too on, you know, who a birth parent selects, who that right fit is for their child. Um, and that's why the, the wait time can kind of uh, vary um, from a few months to a few years, just to be sure it's the right fit for, for, both, for both the sides. Leanne, now it's your turn. How long is how would you answer that question? How long do I have to wait before I have a baby in my arms? And and let me let me say that's after the family. Let's just specify that that's after the family gets their uh, adoptive parent profile in and has completed the home study. So everything that they're supposed they are supposed to do has been done, and they are simply waiting. Hey, Dawn, I would definitely have to agree with Kara. It does depend, and there are a lot of factors, as she has already mentioned, that I completely agree with. Um, you know, I think the more specific a family is about the um, specifics of the child that they're wanting to adopt, um, the longer the wait's going to be. For example, if a family comes in and says, I want a Caucasian uh, girl, and I want the birth mother to not smoke or use any alcohol or drugs during her pregnancy, the wait is going to be much longer than a family who comes in and says, we are open to any ethnicity of child. Um, we don't have any problem with adopting a child whose birth mother has used alcohol in the first month of her pregnancy, you know, before she found out she was pregnant, or that she's used marijuana during the pregnancy, or that she has a mental health issue, or what have you. Um, the more open they are to those different types of situations, the quicker they will be um, able to be matched to a birth parent, because we will be able to show them to many more birth parents. Gotcha. Jim, do you have anything to add to the waiting question? Only that... Um I advise my clients to not necessarily have their iron in just one fire, that uh, some agencies require exclusivity so that they are only signing up with one agency. Our law firm, for instance, we suggest that it's fine if if they're really focused on the timeline and they do feel the need to be based on maybe their age or the age of other siblings in the home, that they have a window that they really hope to meet. 
um, you know, it could easily be, um, you know, more than two years, and that is not a reflection on that family. Some of the nicest families uh, might wait longer. It's just, like was said earlier, it's just that that birth mom hadn't found them yet. So I, I think it's a, a great idea um, for a, a prospective adoptive parents to uh, to have their family profile with an attorney, with an agency, perhaps even two agencies, so long as those agencies are aware of one another and so long mm-hmm. as once they're matched, they pull their name from the other agencies so we don't have a disappointed birth mom, one or the other. Um, and, and as long as those agencies don't require them to have an exclusive relationship with but that, Jim, that do you can, find that, can, that, can, that... That can certainly shorten the, the timeline. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, Jim, do you, have, do you see that single applicants or older applicants wait longer? Um, single applicants, we have a great success with. Um, I, I, don't, I have had a lot of single parents be selected over the traditional two-parent family. I have had uh, same-gender families be selected over the traditional two-parent families. Um, I would probably say that, and, and remember, what is older is really relative. I mean, the, the it's the getting people younger all coming, the time. It's getting older it, all the time for me. Yeah. yeah, let me tell you. People who come to adoption think of themselves as old, but in the adoption pool, they're not old. They're just kind of mid-range folks. We have people in our 50s who are signing up to adopt to us. I don't think we have anyone in their 20s who have signed up to adopt with us. Um, they're they're probably the mid-range is probably uh, you know mid 40s. Um, so I think that prospective adopting parents uh, need to feel empowered that that age is not going to be considered it's really more about their lifestyle. Are they active? Are they healthy? Are they doing things that's going to be more important than their age? And let me just say for our audience, one of the things I just can't recommend enough is when you are in the waiting time to continue to reach out to others. Uh, In-person support groups are wonderful. Um, They are not always available, especially if you don't live in a fairly select number of major metropolitan areas. There are a number of online ones. The Creating a Family one I mentioned earlier is a great one, but there are others as well. It is a great way to continue to prepare yourself as well as, quite frankly, to be able to commiserate and vent uh, at times. And um, and that's uh, that feels good as well. I, you might want to choose a closed group uh, for your venting and um, so that it's not for the world to see. But uh, there are definitely people who have been there, done that, and can support you support you along the way. Let me take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the many resources we provide at Creating a Family. We have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and adoption programs throughout the world, uh, and uh, as well as a domestic infant and their Snowflake Embryo Donation Program. We have Bethany Christian Services. They are a global nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering children and families. They are committed to quality social services along the child welfare continuum, including pregnancy counseling, family preservation, foster care, and adoption. Um, Now, Kara, you had mentioned earlier uh, we were going to talk some about openness in uh, adoption. Mm -hmm. That is a, uh, a term that's 
uh, defined differently by a lot of people. But can you start by kind of giving us a, a crib note version of what we mean by openness? And uh, and then as what somebody, uh, one of the questions we received for the show, uh, she said, and do I have a choice? She says, what is it and do I have a choice? So mm-hmm. uh, let me... Uh, what is it, and, and do you have a choice, Kara? <laughs> sure. Um, and Jim and Leanne, you know, feel free to obviously add on to, to anything I'm saying. But, you know, for us, you know, we really have realized and over the past, you know, we've been around for over 100 years. Um, and, you know, really over the past maybe 30 years, we've really changed from, uh, you know, in social work and in psychology from thinking that the best thing for a child was to go into their new adoptive family and kind of ignore everything that came before. Um, and that's something that we really found is not helpful for really anyone, adoptive parent, birth parent, or adoptee. Um, and we encourage all of our uh, birth parents and adoptive parents to be open to to open adoption. Um, a lot of people think that means, well, do, do, does my child's birth mother need to come over to every birthday party? Do we need to uh, talk to her every day? Um, and I think that a lot of those concerns are come from just being able to establish who's the parent. Um, and we really very, very strongly want to, to state um, every time that the adoptive parents are parenting their child. But we've also found that children are curious about where they come from. They have questions, whether they ask them immediately or not. So we do, you know, ask that it, for in our agency, we do ask that all prospective adoptive parents be open to an open adoption. That being said... Openness kind of can span a a kind of long way. It can go from all the way to we've had birth parents come with adoptive parents to our agency events where they can interact with other adoptees and adoptive families. And we also have open adoptions where the birth parent might only get a letter and pictures and information once a year or once every two years. It's really kind of what works best for that particular relationship. And we really work with the adoptive parents and the birth parents to figure out what's the best fit for them. And we also acknowledge that that can change over time, that a more closed adoption can become more open or maybe less contact is preferred or the child wants more contact as the child gets older. And those are all conversations that we help facilitate because it's not a relationship that just remains static. It's one that changes a lot over the course of a lifetime. And I would add that long-term support um, I think is very helpful in navigating uh, openness as the years go on. Sometimes it's not necessary at all, but sometimes it is. It is there. It, people need help trying to figure out: Are we overreacting? Is this reasonable? Uh, what's best for the child? Uh, so I think that, uh, as we sometimes say, open adoptions can be beautiful, but they can also be messy. And uh, having some support. Uh, and uh, someone to ask questions to and help you navigate um, some of the intricacies, um, I think, can be quite helpful. Leanne, let me ask you a question. I I gave at the beginning a range of costs for adopting a baby. What affects that range? Where in the range you're going to be, and what will it change? How much it will cost? I think there are several things that affect that. Um, Each agency sets their own fees. Attorneys set their own fees as well. Um, 
and I think that depends on the, the services that are being provided by that agency. Um, there are some agencies that charge a base fee. For example, our agency charges a, a base fee, and then in addition to that, for the birth parents that they're matched with, the family pays the expenses that are allowable by the state in addition to that agency fee. Um, and so our agency fee is a little bit lower than some other agency fees, but that's to uh, take into account the expenses that the family is going to incur um, for the birth parent. Um, some agencies charge a an overall fee, which is usually a little bit higher, um, and, and we're talking the difference between somewhat, you know, if you're looking at an agency that works like our agency does, some agencies charge as low as $15,000 up to twenty five or thirty, and then the agencies that char charge an all-encompassing fee, which means that the adoptive families don't pay um, the adoptive parent, I'm sorry, the birth parent expenses directly um, that's included in their fee um, can go up to thirty-five or 40000 Okay, Jim, what do you see influencing costs? I think that um, in private infant adoption, the issue of whether the birth mother is covered by insurance or Medicaid is a big factor, whether there's any living expenses that are allowed by that state and what those reasonable living expenses are. Um, that's that's probably true in the in the agency setting or the private setting. I think the other part here, especially if I'm an adopting parent looking at agencies or law firms, it would be what are, is the risked money that that I have in the event of a failed adoption. Uh, meaning, the birth mother selects me. We get a bunch of information about her, and we feel connected to her, so we are formally met, and we're working with that agency or that law firm, but the baby is born and lo and behold, that birth mom decides that she is not going to stay with her adoption plan. She's going to parent that child. Um, there's a lot of different structures out there about that. Is the family then have that outlay of funds and then they have to start all over? Because there are some families that just can't afford that risk. So some agencies will, and law firms, will allow that risk to be sort of collective, that of the law firm or the agency, and that family does not have that expenditure unless there is that placement. Um, others will perhaps roll over those cost fees and expenses that went for that failed adoption towards their next adoption. Still others will just say you're right back in the pool, but you're starting over with having expended that $10,000. So there are so many different business models and those are really good questions to ask. And for any place that pushes back from answering those questions, that's not a good place to be. Yeah, I would agree with that. Those are definitely questions that we have on our questionnaires um, when selecting uh, an, an agency or an attorney, uh, for sure. All right, I'd like to move now to uh, the second major type of adoption, and that is foster care adoption. You can adopt from either the county welfare, child welfare agency, and that goes by different names in different states, or you can adopt through foster care using a private agency that has a contract uh, from the state to place children from foster care. The cost to adopt from foster care is minimal. I think the average that we give on our website is you know, uh, right around slightly over $2,000. Uh, and uh, that most children, and, and that, that cost is often covered completely. Um, 
in addition, the vast majority of children who are adopted from foster care will receive a monthly cash subsidy. There are two basic types of foster care adoption, and that is adopting a child whose parental rights have already been terminated, and there are a little over 100,000 children in that position uh, in the U.S. foster care system currently waiting for an adoptive family. Or you can go through a program that's called different things in different states, but it usually is some variation on the words foster to adopt. Okay, we have a question from Carla, and I'm going to jump with that one. She wants to know, is it possible to adopt an infant from foster care? Kara, I'm going to uh, ask you that question. I know Spence Chapin has a foster care adoption. You have a, Spence Chapin does have a contract with the state of New York to place children. So uh, let me ask you that question. Is it possible to adopt an infant from foster care? So we actually don't have a contract with the state to um, place children in foster care, but I can oh, I can answer the question. It's okay. I can answer the question. I'm happy to, but, um, you know, defer uh, if anyone else wants to jump in as well. It is absolutely possible to adopt an infant from foster care. Um, there are a lot of parents who become foster parents um, to foster to adopt is typically what we call that path. Um, there, there, a lot of times people um, get a little bit confused or might decide not to choose that path because children in foster care are not always legally freed, what we call legally freed for adoption, and that it means that their parents might not have already relinquished their parental rights. Uh, they might be hoping to be able to parent at a time in the future. They might be hoping that a family member of theirs will be able to care for their child in the future, or it might have been a very sudden removal from the home, and they're just hoping that the child will come back um, once they're able to to work with their uh, child welfare organization. So sometimes, you know, you can foster an infant, um, and unfortunately, for whatever reason, that child has to return back to, to birth family or to other family members. So while it's absolutely possible to adopt an infant from foster care, the difference between that kind of adoption and the domestic infant adoption that we were just speaking about before is that the children that we would place in a domestic infant adoption would have already been legally freed for adoption. So there is not that additional kind of wait time and paperwork um, to, to, to work with for that. Yeah, our basic answer when we, we get this question a fair amount, and our basic answer, it is possible. It is almost not possible uh, through the children who's, who are parental rights have been terminated. So every once in a while you'll see that in a sibling group where uh, the, the youngest in the sibling group will be newborn and the other's parental rights have already been terminated. So that might happen. But usually the uh, way to adopt an infant is through the Foster to Adopt program and as Kara very eloquently stated, you run the risk uh, that the infant will go back uh, to the birth family. The goal of foster care is family reunification, and so the uh, caseworkers are working with the birth family to try to help that family heal so that they will be able to parent. And uh, if not them, then they seek a uh, family, uh, extended family members. So while it's possible, it is not, uh, I wouldn't say it is, common. Um, so that's an, an important to know. Jim, I know you do some foster care adoption. What is the average age of children available for adopting from foster care, either through the already uh, terminated, parental rights already terminated, or through the foster to adopt? Right. And if you don't know, that's I, fine. I know that 
a couple of interesting statistics that probably are similar in South Carolina to other places, and and um, that addresses your your previous question and folds into the age as well. And it's a comparison with private infant adoption. It's just a very two different universes. Um, and with infant adoption, what we were just talking about, those children are being voluntarily placed by the birth parents in the social services setting, the foster care setting, um, in South Carolina, 97% of the kids that are in the social services custody have been abused, neglected, or abandoned. And it's the coercive power of the state that comes in to protect those children that bring those kids into care. Only 3% of those children are voluntarily placed by their birth parents. So it's a as I say, two different universes, two different means by which the child comes into care. To do a judicial termination of parental rights, meaning for the judge to terminate rights versus a voluntary relinquishment, we're talking about adding years to the process versus a a considered um, moment in time when the birth parent can release a child for adoption in the private setting. So I would say that the, the average um, for for the child to be adopted in South Carolina is a lot older than for the child to come into their care because it can often take two years or more once mm-hmm. the child comes into the care to reach um, to reach adoption. So I would and during that period, the child will be living with, during that period of time, often if the family is the foster family, the child will be That's living right. in the home. Right. That's right. So I would probably say for adoption, to reach adoption is probably in the range of seven years, um, placement perhaps in the range of four to seven on average would be my best estimation. Yeah, and that's about what uh, the statistics show um, nationwide. Uh, as you say, the vast majority of children have been uh, are, are there because their parental rights, the children have been removed from the home from uh, for uh, neglect or abuse. The average age uh, at removal is somewhere around five. The average age of kids who are currently waiting to be adopted is somewhere around seven to eight. Um, and for foster care, it would be uh, usually a uh, a little younger, keeping in mind that there's lots of of, um, of sibling groups um, in need, and and some those and those if you're open to sibling groups can go even even younger. Um, uh, Kara, do how long do people usually have to wait if they uh, are adopting, wanting to adopt from foster care, and are open to foster to adopt? In other words, are open to take children that they know um, have not had parental rights terminated. Right, and I might I might defer to Jim on this one, um, but it, I think you know what we've seen it, it really kind of varies. Um, you know, you always hear these stories, these wonderful stories about people who had fostered to adopt, um, and as soon as, you know, they became foster parents, you know, six months later, they had a a child in their home and were able to move forward with that adoption. And, you know, typically, I think, you know, it can take anywhere from a year or two to to, um, several years um, has been our experience here and what we've mostly seen. But again, you know, I want to defer to Jim. I think he has a a little bit more experience uh, working directly with that system. Okay. Well, and, and really, Jim, let me let me say what I really wanted was more curious about was after you've applied, gone through your thirty to thirty-five hours of each state requires a specific mm-hmm. course, education course. Um, it's either thirty yeah. or thirty-five, depending on the course. So once you've done all that, 
Um, what's that? Uh, how long do you see people waiting before they get a foster placement? Well, and this this poses this great um, irony that there are children waiting, and yet people who are receptive to adopting them seem to wait the longest in in uh, for for foster to adopt placements. Um, and I I have to say that there is. Um, some frustration. Uh, it takes the squeaky wheel, gets the grease when it comes to uh, trying to have a, a placement from foster care. Um, and some, if you squeak too loud, sometimes there can be political pushback in these situations. And so it is a it is a um, kind of um, catch as catch can, if you will, situation where some families seem to uh, have a have a short wait, and we have other families who are equally good and equally committed as parents who are have been waiting five years and haven't gotten that placement yet. I, if I were going to look at factors, it would be selection criteria, it would be receptivity to sibling groups, receptivity to adopting a child, um, a transracial adoption beyond your 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 racial background. Um, and then there are also issues about the abuse, neglect, and abandonment that precipitated the child coming into care. And if they really do some soul searching, if you are the family that is ready to parent that child. So um, I think all of those factors come, in, come into, way, in, into play. But typically, families who want to adopt from foster care wait longer than families who will go through the, the private infant adoption, either agency-based or lawyer-based. You know, I see um, it, perhaps until the adoption is finalized that 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 would that may well be accurate. But and and you're correct. There seems to be fairly large diversity, um, between, even between counties within the same state. It's interesting from what we see. Um, usually, if you are fairly open, uh, once you have completed your uh, education in your home study and you are waiting, usually you can expect, if, if you're fairly open, as Jim has pointed out, to race, sibling group, uh, age, and and reasonable uh, risk factors uh, for what the uh, behavior of the, that the child might be exhibiting. You can expect a, a foster placement relatively quickly. Now, whether or not that foster placement will move to adoption is something that is really hard to predict. Uh, most families that uh, we talk to here who are hoping to adopt from foster care have gone through at least one foster placement that didn't that did not m- proceed to adoption um, and another interesting statistic is of, of all the children who enter foster care, roughly you know somewhere around twenty five percent are ultimately adopted, uh, and usually the first people who are given the option to adopt. Uh, that child are the foster parents. So, but as we've all said, it's awfully difficult to uh, to, to make predictions. But you need to be prepared prepared if you're going to the foster to adopt to know that in fact you might not that, that the first child placed may not be the child that you are able to adopt, and you have to be willing to accept that. That's the goal of foster care is family reunification. Um, Kara, is is it possible to select gender and <laughs> Excuse me, I just drank tea. That's terrible. 
Can you select gender and age? Kara? Yes, in foster care adoption? Yes. Um, you can be open to, uh, you know, when you do your, your map, your, well, in New York, I just said map training because in New York it's called map training. You know, once you do your training and once you, um, you know, have that foster care home study completed, you can specify, you know, what, you know, age range, what genders that, uh, you know, of, of children that you are open to um, in your home. Um, and that's, you know, Again, you know, you can specify that, but I think as Jim kind of alluded to, you know, the children that come into into care, into the system, may or may not be that uh, particular age range, may or, na- may or not be that particular gender. So the wait time for that would really depend on the children that um, that, that the child welfare system is seeing um, and how good of a match that is with what your openness is to what kind of children can be placed in your home. Gotcha. All right, let's move to talking about international adoption. I apologize, everybody. I'm drinking tea for a cold, and I used loose tea, and unfortunately, I got a loose tea piece. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, Let me see. Let me see. We're going to move to international adoption. Let's see. Kara, since you guys do international adoption, what Mm -hmm. is the typical age if you want to adopt a child as young as possible? Sure. So that, I hesitate to say this, but it depends. Um, you know, what we've seen now, and, and I think that, you know, Jim and Liam will, will speak to this uh, trend that we've been seeing throughout uh, adoption, is that the children who are really most in need of families today tend to be older children, uh, sibling groups, or children who have special needs. Uh, you know, so we have, you know, three international programs at our agency in Bulgaria, Colombia, and South Africa. And the needs kind of vary per country. Um, in South Africa, we do have infants and toddlers who are in need of homes, who have special needs, who are HIV positive or who have hepatitis B or tuberculosis. You know, in some other countries where, uh, you know, maybe medical care is different, maybe the level of infectious disease rates are lower, um, you know, you're seeing a need for children who are 9, 10, 11 years old or older children and their younger siblings a lot as well. So it really depends. But I think that, you know, if you take a look at the trends, you know, on the State Department website, and if you look at the trends, you know, overall in child welfare, nowadays there are less infants healthy infants who really need homes that are are living internationally. It's more of those older kids, more of those school-age children, um, or the younger children who, who again, you know, have special needs and and need medical care. Right. They look a lot like the kids from U.S. foster care system, actually. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We do say that the first step is to select a country, and the best place to do that is the adoption comparison charts on the Creating a Family website. And for those countries where we do not have a chart, you can go to the State Department site, which is travel.state.gov, and and then just uh, Google for, I mean, uh, search for adoption. The average cost is anywhere from, again, this is an average, but 30 to 45,000. Is it possible uh, to choose, and Kara, since you're the only one at this point who has an international adoption program. <clears throat> also, though, oh, Leanne, you do um, you do uh, home studies for that. So, is it possible to choose? Let me ask you know, Leanne this question: Is it possible 
for families to select gender when they are adopting internationally. Yes, it is possible. It does depend on the agency and the country that the family is working with, though, but, but it is possible to, to specify a gender preference. And how long, I mean, the, the question we certainly get a lot is how long do people have to wait? Now, I know that the answer to this is going to say it depends. Is it going to be it depends? Carol, what does the waiting time depend on when adopting internationally? Right. So, uh, yes, again, of course it depends. But uh, it depends on the country. It depends on, um, you know, what kind of documents that you'd have to submit for that. But once, say all of your paperwork is in. Um, and you've, you know, ter- you've done your home study, you've done your application, and you're just really waiting um, to be matched with a child. It, it depends on what your level of openness is. Are you open to special needs? You know, are you, is your age range very set? You know, are you only open to adopting a, a girl or a boy, um, or are you only open to adopting a sibling group? Um, and that's a you know a hard question that families really have to ask themselves to make the right choice for them. Um, you know, your age request does it match up with the the children that are in care? You know, we there, we know there's 8,000 children in Colombia over the age of 10 who need families. Are you looking for a four to six year old? Then it, the wait time might be longer. But if you're open to an 8- to 10-year-old, your wait time might only be 6 to 12 months. Um, and I think that we're really seeing, you know, in terms of the infrastructure in-country, the process that they have set up as well also really impacts that wait time. So to be sure to choose an agency, you know, that is ethically sound, that you feel comfortable with, their infrastructure, their transparency around the entire adoption process, um, and to just know that the countries that they're working in have that same process set up on the other end. And we do analyze the top-placing countries to the United States um, for the 25 factors that we think parents should consider, and one of those factors is uh, waiting times. So we do give a a range of waiting times uh, on our adoption comparison charts. We just got a question, an email question sent in that I want to it's about a domestic infant adoption. Uh, well, actually, she didn't say, but I'm, I think it's about domestic infant adoption, and I want to get that one in as well. Uh, and, and this one might be something that uh, everyone may have a different opinion on. So let me start with you, Leanne. The question is from Gina. She wants to know if it is true that she would have a shorter wait if we adopt a full African-American baby, especially if it's a boy. Leanne? That is definitely true um, with our agency. Um, we oftentimes um, are looking for adoptive parents who are willing to adopt um, an African-American baby, especially a, a male child. Um, for some reason, uh, people are more willing to and, and interested in adopting girl children for some reason. I'm not sure why that is, but um, but we definitely see that trend with our agency. Um, we also see a trend in this kind of relates to this question that a lot of times birth parents are looking for African-American couples to adopt, and oftentimes agencies don't have very many African-American couples for um, birth parents to choose from. So many times we're doing nationwide searches to look for those families, and so we definitely are interested in in any families, but uh, certainly would like to to have more uh, African-American families for our birth parents to choose from. Jim, what do you see on that? As far as African-American um, children, um, there are a couple of misnomers. One is that there are a lot of African-American kids available for adoption, 
and that um, I think the, the stereotype is that African-American birth moms are not as likely to place, and that's just not our experience. About half of our adoptions are of African-American kids. Um, but of the families waiting to adopt African-American kids, the vast majority are Caucasian. So if a, if a, a prospective adopting parent are of color or an interracial family, they could have a very short wait to be able to adopt an African-American child. Um, but there, there is there is a, a fairly different uh, wait at our at our office. The average time to wait for an African American child is seven months, and for a Caucasian child, fifteen months. So that's a substantial difference. Do you see a difference between boys and girls? Not that I've noticed. Um, I, I know that um, at any given time at our firm, we do allow um, sex selection for, from by, by adoptive parents. And in any given time, we have we have people um, who who it, are looking for boys or girls. It doesn't seem to be a consistent preference for us. Okay. And Kara, what do you guys see um, as far as waiting times for full African American uh, boys? Right. So we, uh, you know, being located in New York City, we always say, you know, the children that you know are available for adoption in our care always reflect the full ethnic. Um, and diverse racial background of New York City. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, the children um, who are, you know, available for uh, domestic infant adoption are African-American or Hispanic or of another minor- mixed-race minority background. Um, so we do, you know, find that parents who are open to different races, people who are open to different, um, you know, uh, that, that, that those types of diverse features um, oftentimes will be waiting less. Uh, amount of time um, than somebody who is very, very set on one particular race or, or particular gender of a child. Gosh, I mean, that's, I think, pretty much, well, universal. Um, the last type of adoption, which is really not a type of adoption, but something I wanted to cover in this one Adoption 101 show because it is something that we get questions on when people are at the very beginning and analyzing what their next step should be, and that is uh, embryo uh, donation. And some people call that uh, embryo adoption. <clears throat> At Creating a Family, we call it embryo donation. And the uh, it, it is an option that I think it's actually an option that we see more families interested in now than than before. Leanne, can you give us a brief overview of what embryo donation is? Yes, I will be glad to speak to that. Um, We actually have, we call ours an embryo adoption program, and we treat it just like a child adoption since those embryos could be potential children. Um, And and some agencies don't treat it that same way, and and certainly some clinics don't treat it that way. But in general, it's where uh, families who have created embryos through IVF um, and have had all the children that they desire to have through the embryos that they have created and have leftover embryos, if you would, well, if you would call them leftover embryos, um, that are either going to remain in storage, be destroyed, or be donated to another family to adopt so that they might have the chance to um, have that embryo implanted so that they could have a, a pregnancy. Um, and that's the basics of, of embryo adoption. Um, again, we treat embryo adoption just like we would a child adoption. The uh, family who's adopting the embryos, if you will, um, go through the same process an adoptive family would go through in terms of having a home study um, and being approved as an adoptive home and um, 
are able to connect with the uh, genetic family um, if that's what they choose to do so that they have a little bit more information about uh, the embryos that they are, are taking. Right, and at Creating a Family, we have a lot of resources, embryo donation or embryo adoption, and we cover uh, information such as the cost, the different options. Leanne alluded to you can um, find embryos and, and work the process, go through the process any number of different places, including infertility clinics, specialized agencies that just do embryo donation, and then uh, adoption agencies that all that do it as well. So we cover all of that on our embryo donation slash embryo adoption page. I'd like to take uh, just a moment, another moment, to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and say thank you, thank you, thank you. We couldn't do what we do without you. We have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a national adoption agency with offices in North Carolina and New York, placing children from Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Armenia, Morocco, and Serbia and independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, and more. We have come to the end of our show. If you have enjoyed the show, we ask that you go onto iTunes and give us a rating. It is how iTunes um, knows whether to suggest this show to others. We are the number one rated show on iTunes in these subjects, both uh, adoption and infertility, and we'd like to remain there. So we really would appreciate it if you would give us a, either a star rating and or a comment. Thank you so much, Jim Thompson, Leanne Carnes, and Carla, uh, oops, Eusebio, I was going to say. I almost said it wrong, Carla. Kara, uh, but uh, thank you so much for being our guest today on Creating a Family. To our audience, if you want to participate in a discussion of the topics we are talking about today, please join us on my blog tomorrow. I'm going to be blogging on this topic, and we will probably go through a, an interesting discussion because we always do. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn, compare it to your neighbor's lawn, and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.